Friends, hello and welcome to Never Post, a podcast about the internet. I'm your host, Mike Rugnetta. This introduction was written at 11.43 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. Let's talk about what's happened since the last time you heard from us. In independent media news, journalists Lynn Codega, Rowan Zioli, and Chase Carter launched Rascal, an independent, reader-supported, worker-owned news site focusing on tabletop role-playing games and the industry surrounding them. Or, quote, the newest tabletop role-playing game outlet from three writers who don't know how to do anything else. I respect it. As discussed in Never Post Episode Zero, there has been a palpable shift over the last few years towards worker-owned cooperatives, and it's really incredible to see that trend extending to the relative niches of things like TTRPGs, actual play, and so on. You can read more about Rascal at rascal.news and rascal underscore news on X. We, of course, wish him the best of luck. You should go check him out. This last Monday, the American Supreme Court heard oral arguments on a case concerning laws in Texas and Florida, which seek to restrict social media platforms' ability to moderate content. Legally, the question being asked is if Facebook, say, is more like a newspaper and that they're allowed to exercise some editorial control by choosing what to publish and how, or if it's more like a phone line, a utility that should carry whatever content it is asked to with little consideration as to its broader meaning or impact in the moment. Some folks have suggested the answer is neither, that platforms are more like a mall, privately owned spaces which act as public spaces, but whose owners can and should impose usage restrictions in certain cases. The problem is that all of the pre-existing case law doesn't really apply tidily to the internet. And so that's why the Supreme Court will rule on these specific cases. The stakes here are pretty big, but according to NBC News, at least, quote, after almost four hours of oral arguments, a majority of the justices appeared skeptical that states can prohibit platforms from barring or limiting the reach of some problematic users without violating the free speech rights of the companies. In other words, justices seem to think that platforms are allowed to moderate. Alito, of course, wondered if content moderation is, quote, anything more than a euphemism for censorship, proving once again he is the court's resident 13-year-old Redditor with a sword collection. Yahoo announced it would be laying off 10 staff members at Engadget, including editor-in-chief Dana Woolman and managing editor Terrence O'Brien. The remaining staff will be focused on get ready for the most compelling pitch for a website you have heard in a while, Google traffic, SEO, commerce, and affiliate revenue. It really feels increasingly like the internet is only for the LLMs and the ad bots and no one else. Days later, Vice announced it would no longer exist thanks to the management of its owner, a private equity consortium led by Fortress Investment Group, who is also tied, Megan Greenwell noted on X, to the gutting of national newspaper publisher Gannett. Hundreds of journalists employed by Gannett, the country's largest newspaper chain, went on strike today. Staffers from two dozen newsrooms from California to New York walked off the job, demanding livable wages and accusing Gannett leadership of decimating its newsrooms. You can hear some detailed chat on Vice's bankruptcy filing from last year on Ripcorp, a podcast Jason and I produce with Ingrid Burrington. I'll put a link to that and sources for all this stuff in the show notes. 
Vice announced that operation of the website would cease, effective almost immediately. The entire archive was axed, leaving writers and journalists scrambling to save their clips after access to the internal CMS was unilaterally terminated. Jules Sulitsev on X noted also that it appears a thousand or more Now This News videos have been axed in the recent past, leading to conversation about how content makers can save their work to prove that they've done it. A few people on the Never Post team know this firsthand, as we previously worked on an amazing podcast stricken pretty much completely from the internet by Matt Mullenweg, who has had a real week. But that's about all any of us have the stomach to say. Jules, for his part, has apparently extended an offer to Now This to purchase the deleted videos on behalf of, quote, a small coalition of former employees. In show news, meaning us, we've been around for a month. Holy heck! And we have also been featured on Apple Podcasts' new and noteworthy section for the past week and change, which is... Uh, honestly, it's sort of flabbergasting and amazing. So hello and welcome to anyone who has come to the show via that route. But really, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and especially thanks to all of the folks who are sending us emails and voice memos and voicemail about the show and about segments and just telling us your thoughts and uh, telling us things we should cover. On that subject, we are going to be releasing our first mailbag episode next week, and that will go out on the main feed and the member-only episode feeds. So let us know uh, if you like that as a format once it's out, and, uh, you know, if we all have a good time, we'll try to get to doing one of those every, I don't know, let's say three or four episodes. As for this episode... We got a great one for you. Georgia is going to talk with writer and researcher Tamara Nice about how platforms do and mostly do not acknowledge death and support the grieving process. And then you'll hear from me on the subject of trick shotters, people throwing things into other things impressively. But first, some chill, lo-fi, public domain beats to soothe your nerves. That album was under the influence of love. That, that, that was... That album was under the influence of love. That, 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 that was... Under the influence of love. That, 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 that was... Under the influence of love. Blood, blood.
American Hysteria is a podcast that explores fantastical thinking, moral panics, and urban legends to understand how they've long shaped our culture. With topics like stranger danger, the gay agenda, satanic cults, the Westboro Baptist Church, and phantom clowns, the show is sometimes hilarious, sometimes horrifying, and sometimes heartfelt. I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith, and you can subscribe to American Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. In some ways, our relationship to death looks the same, online and off. People grieve, they share photos, they commiserate. And posting about death online lets you share in a way that's so much more far-reaching than it would be in real life. But there's, there's this other part of the online experience of grieving that is, I mean, it's fucked up. This segment contains discussion of death, dying, mass shootings, and a brief mention of suicide. To give you an example of what I mean, I have to describe a TikTok to you. It's by this woman, Adriana, who is driving to go pick up her husband's ashes, and you're really in it with her. She's positioned her phone so you're basically sitting in the passenger seat, and you're there with her when she parks and sits there for a second, and then bursts into tears. Then she leaves the car and comes back with a box. She opens it and pulls out the little blue disc-shaped urn, and you're right there in the passenger seat when she holds it up against her chest and starts crying again. At the bottom of the screen, she has put a caption talking about how hard it is to lose someone so special. But while I was reading it, I noticed this other thing. Under the caption, there's this little alert that the app put in there, and it says, Participating in this activity could result in you or others getting hurt. And listen, I know it's there because she's in a car. It's standard boilerplate language that TikTok places alongside most videos shot in cars. But I just felt myself getting so fucking mad because it felt so disrespectful to the content of the video. Like, here's this woman sharing an unbelievably intimate part of her life and the software just like muscles in there like, hey guys, hey, hello, like... It just felt so inappropriate, so utterly tone deaf. And this speaks to the way that platforms deal with death generally, not with respect, sometimes not at all. And I just, I felt like social media platforms should know better than this. Because seriously, haven't we been online long enough to figure out how to handle the concept of death? 
a lot of platforms are sort of in the middle of developing a memorialization policy, but don't quite have one yet. This is Tamara Nice. I'm Tamara Nies, and I'm currently the project director of Data and Society Research Institute's new Algorithmic Impact Methods Lab, or AIM Lab. Tamara is exactly who I wanted to talk to about this, because she wrote the book about this topic. It's called Death Glitch, and she describes it as... A long-term look at the changing user experience of death online, and so really trying to understand the ways in which people have been using social media platforms and other, other kinds of digital media and smart devices in order to maintain relationships with the dead, to memorialize them, and also to mourn, or to imagine their own afterlives. Death Glitch covers a huge range of issues around death and grieving online. But I was especially interested in this tension between the users who are posting about death and loss online and the platforms themselves, which don't seem to know how to handle these concepts properly. To put it plainly, online social networks have always been bad at handling the grieving process. That weird mess up with TikTok is actually pretty tame. Back in the 2000s, in the beginning of social media, it used to be so much worse. And a big reason for that, as Tamara says, is because of the original purpose of these websites, and specifically, Facebook. Facebook was built by college kids for college kids. And by and large, you know, um, people at elite colleges don't really think about their own death a lot. But everybody dies. And Facebook users did die. In the beginning, Facebook handled that in a very simple way. They just delete that person's profile. Photos, bio, all of it just gone in a second. And there was no widespread belief that it might be useful or important to keep that stuff accessible online. And then, everything changed very suddenly. On the morning of April 16th, 2007, an undergraduate student opened fire in two different university buildings at Virginia Tech and killed 33 people. It remains the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. And within hours of the attack, Virginia Tech students started using Facebook as a way to tell their friends that they were safe and to check in with each other. They also started visiting the profiles of students who had died to just look at them, to leave comments, and to say stuff that they didn't have a chance to say before. And there also was a growing kind of mass memorialization movement A lot of students ended up putting a black ribbon as their Facebook profile to kind of show solidarity with the victims of the gun violence. And so it was almost like a feedback loop, right, where, you know, you had a lot of students who were using Facebook to talk about what had happened and communicate with each other. And then because there was already a lot of content on Facebook about Virginia Tech, that got taken up by the news as being part of the story. Suddenly, Facebook was becoming an essential tool of the grieving process for Virginia Tech students, their families, and their friends. 
A big part of that was because by 2007, Facebook was the social media platform. It was bigger than MySpace. It was bigger than Friendster. This was where that age bracket hung out online. Everybody was there. So when the Virginia Tech massacre happened and students started posting about it all over Facebook, it really just showed how integral this website was in the daily lives of college-aged people. Pretty much all the victims of the shooting had a Facebook profile. You could revisit their photos or read their bio. And this allowed you to even kind of continue communicating with them. You could still wish them a happy birthday on their Facebook wall. Their profile could feel alive, even though you knew this person was dead. These profiles were suddenly extremely important in a new way, not just as something left behind, but also something to maintain. But initially, Facebook didn't really catch on to that. Facebook announced that they were going to deactivate the profiles of the victims. And this really upset a lot of the friends and family members of the people who had died. And there were actually grassroots campaigns led by Virginia Tech students in order to get Facebook to change their memorialization policy and allow them to preserve uh, the profiles of the dead indefinitely. The campaigning worked. Facebook decided to stop deleting these profiles. But Facebook didn't really do much else. The accounts of dead users weren't memorials or anything like that. They were still just regular profiles, like anyone else. And that became a huge problem. Because while all of this was happening, Facebook was also working on this thing called Reconnect. It's just what it sounds like. This little feature that tries to coax inactive users back onto the platform by inviting active users to reach out. And, um, well, I think you see where this is going. You know, you would get a prompt like, hey, reach out to your friend because they haven't been on Facebook in a while. You should poke them or, you know, whatever. And, um, of course, some of the users who were no longer active were no longer active because they were dead. Once again, people started complaining. And this mounting pressure pushed Facebook to adopt an official policy in 2009, which did make memorial pages a specific, different thing. If you showed Facebook someone's proof of death, you could transform your loved one's profile into a memorial page that was basically frozen in time and, crucially, wouldn't come up on the reconnect feature. But weird software problems involving dead users kept cropping up in other ways. For example, inactive accounts are much more likely to be hacked. So all of a sudden, someone's dead grandma starts posting about cryptocurrency or starts sending out messages with links to a website that's trying to steal your credit card information. What we're left with is this situation where the living and the dead cohabitate in a digital space that is really only consciously built for living users. And while I wish I could tell you this was just happening on Facebook, 
it wasn't. These horrible, uncanny experiences happened across all digital platforms, and they keep happening. Tamara knows about this firsthand. I had a friend who died by suicide um, a couple of years ago, and LinkedIn actually sent a reminder of her work anniversary. It felt very uh, disturbing because it was uh, this sort of this weird sheen of like professionalism and you know careerism, but for somebody who had died in a very tragic way. That's the weird, horrible tension here. While social media networks are being used as essential spaces for grieving and commiseration, there are also these emotional minefields for anyone who's grieving. And so the feeling of kind of intentionally visiting the profile of somebody who had died, that does feel very much akin to visiting a gravesite or having some other ritual that you are setting aside to communicate or commune with the dead and then but then these moments of sort of being intruded on and that, and actually a lot of the people that I interviewed about sort of caring for the the digital remains of their loved ones, that was when they would get upset is if they felt like the algorithm was being intrusive in some way, or if the technology was haunting them in a way um, that felt more like a violation. That's the thing. You can't choose one or the other. It's always both. You can visit the profile of a dead relative or make a TikTok about picking up your husband's ashes, but the software makes its own moves in parallel, and you don't get to control that. Grief is a complex emotion around which we have very little social training. There's no standard way to express grief or to receive it. Sometimes it feels taboo, Often, it feels weird. It's complicated. But software is strict. It's good at following simple rules and adapting to patterns, but it's not nuanced. It can't take a hint. It can't read the room. In an essential way, it can't and won't serve these complicated emotional needs. So there's this degree to which any social media platform just will never be a reliable steward of the digital remains of a dead person. Websites are always changing and updating and redesigning, which doesn't always play well with the memorial page that's been frozen in time since 2007. And I mean, I don't think it's unrealistic for me to say that Facebook is not going to exist forever. So, what happens to these memorials when Mark Zuckerberg pulls the plug? I think the problem with what is happening now is that people have very little control over how those memories will be maintained over the long term. And so much can change very quickly. So, you know, the interface is going to change. The memorial that you have is not a static thing. It is not a headstone. It is not a photograph that may fade, but generally looks the same. We're talking about interfaces that are, you know, very malleable, that may disappear. And so it is a very different kind of relationship because it is not it is not very permanent um, in any way. And I think people have to kind of accept that because the thing that you have become very attached to may in fact not be something that you can maintain for decades into the future. 
Thank you so much to Tamara Nice for talking to us. This whole conversation really helped me be able to name and examine these weird feelings I had about how platforms just don't really seem to understand death and grief. And I want to know if you have similar frustrations around social media platforms and how they handle or mishandle death. I'm also interested in your own weird experiences where software is just totally incapable of navigating the tricky terrain of grief and dying. Send us an email, leave us a voicemail, tell us what you think. The information about the many ways you can reach us are down in the show notes. Hi there. Hans Buto, senior producer for Never Post here. You know what we do in this part of the show. We ask you to help us. And there are, as always, a couple of ways you can help us. You can become a subscriber to the show if you aren't. Rad. Love that. Uh, you can tell a friend to listen. Double rad. Double love that. Review on iTunes. Fabulous. All of those are incredible and actually really helpful ways to support the show. And we appreciate all of them. But there's one specific thing that you can do for us right now that would really help the show, and that is to send us your voice. Here's the thing. I am working on a couple of new interstitials. So that's the interludes, the pauses, the moments of reflection that we build into each episode. And we want your stories for those interstitials. We want things like, what is your favorite hidden corner of the internet? Or what was the best computer you ever owned? Head over to neverpo.st slash interstitials to see all of the prompts that you can respond to. We will keep updating that list because we'd love to hear from you about a lot of things. So neverpo.st slash interstitials. There's also a link in the show notes. I love a challenge. I love all kinds of challenges. I love long books, tight deadlines, boring movies, ambitious projects, music that is, as far as most people are concerned, unlistenable. 
I like finding meaning where the search for it feels futile. I like being bad at stuff, and I love getting better. Another version of me definitely runs marathons for sure, but this version does 24-hour plays and tries to make a living as a podcaster. So maybe it makes sense that I love trickshot videos. I haven't always. I've known for a long time of like, you know, dude perfect, the YouTube wizards of sinking seemingly impossible sick basketball shots. Only thing between us and history, 800 feet. Let's go boys, come on, we can do it. Recently, the more general trick shot genre has found me on TikTok in the way things find you on TikTok. And then you find those things reflecting something deep about your personality that maybe you were not ready to admit. If you're unfamiliar, the premise of the trickshot genre is simple. A man, almost always a man, though not exclusively, throws, almost always throws, though not exclusively, some object into or onto some other object impressively, impossibly. A card from across the room into a closed clothespin attached to a spinning turntable. A disc bounced off several surfaces and into the slot of a Nintendo Wii. And oh, so many ping pong balls bounced off every conceivable surface and into any and every vessel imaginable. But most often, it seems, a solo cup quietly suggesting that the trickshot genre's er trickshot is, and has probably always been, beer pong. Trickshot videos themselves don't really make for instructive nor compelling audio. Mostly one hears a flicked finger, silence, maybe a bounce or two, a ding or a clink, and then a cheer. Oh! Always a cheer, because as trickshot success compilation videos make evident in big, bold text, these successes take seven hours, three hours, 10 hours, 17 hours, and yes, occasionally four tries in two minutes, but often the better part of a waking day, sitting there tossing, flicking, flipping, waiting, and finally you make it. Of course you'd cheer. Yo, yes! I wanted to talk to someone about this, a trick shotter, I mean, about the frame of mind they enter when doing their work, what it's like to set up for themselves a challenge they know could take a dozen or more hours to meet. I want to know what their goals are, what the ideal outcomes for their work as a whole are, and more than anything, to find out what it feels like, what it means to them, how it differs, or maybe doesn't, from darts, long books, golf, boring movies, basketball, other challenges, and other things that one can put skillfully into other things. So I reached out to a number of trick shotters, and none of them returned my emails. Actually, that's not true. One did after about two weeks, and they very politely declined. At this time, they wrote, I am not interested in participating in your podcast, which honestly, I get it. No hard feelings. How thematic. Anyway, I had tossed all my cards, gotten no snags. So I went to Target and bought the cheapest set of pans I could find. I want to know what it feels like doing trick shots. Maybe I can find out for myself. 
I told our senior producer, Hans, and my wife, Molly, about my plan, and they both said the same thing to me. Please be careful. What if this awakens something in you? You're about to turn 40. This can't become your midlife crisis. I told you, I love a challenge. I brought my pots and pans into my tiny basement studio. I'm currently surrounded by them recording this and set them up in the style of Sam Carlson, a.k.a. Tricks Shot with an X in the middle, a well-known TikTok and Twitch trick shot live streamer who, among other things, bounces ping pong balls off of cookware in his stairwell. His social media bios read, you've seen me on my steps. I get the ping pong balls from my sound design kit. They're good for all kinds of things, so I have a bunch, and I get to work. <laughs> uh, here we go, I guess. It took me about an hour on a Sunday night to design a remedial trick shot course. And upon my first attempt, my first toss, I was reminded immediately of Sisyphus. Have I cheated death and for my crimes been sentenced to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity? No, but the superficial resemblances are not remote. Here I stand, repeatedly tossing balls, watching them plink off a succession of overturned Farberware nonstick skillets, hoping they will plonk into a plastic cup, retrieving them over and over and over again when I'm empty-handed. I understand now why Sam and other trick shotters have so many ping pong balls. One pan in my studio hangs from the ceiling. That's the one I throw the balls at. They then fly over my head to a pan angled atop my MIDI keyboard. In a usually tall, shallow bounce, the ball then hopefully dings the next pan on my step stool. Then, if they even make it this far, off a baking tin atop my tiny trash can and towards a McDonald's cup angled sideways inside a wooden Ikea salad bowl. It's a Rube Goldberg-esque assemblage of kitchen gear stretching from my desk to the door of my studio. About 20 feet. And with each successive ding and dong and plink and plonk, the progression through my little circuit feels increasingly remote, improbable, borderline. I practice what I can, meaning the few things I can practice, where I stand, how I aim my ping pong ball at the center of the first skillet, and how hard I toss it. After that, the rest is sort of up to chance. Or I guess, not chance really, but chaos. The whole thing is a classically chaotic system, accounting for all of the variables I could, in theory, know how each toss will go. The spin on the ball, the slight wind from my studio HVAC, the density and smoothness of the pan surface where the ball hits, it's all knowable, technically, and contributes to my long string of failures. The pots make, I notice, a nice little melody once I can successfully hit three of them in a row, which is not often. I begin to realize the layers of practice, not just where I stand, how hard and at what angle I throw the ping pong ball, but also how I've set up my circuit. I've created, I think, too many variables. I adjust my setup slightly, secure some pieces with gaff tape, and adjust also my attitude. 
I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm not making it. And it has been 20 minutes. I'm not even getting started yet. As I toss the ping pong balls, I think about Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who wrote under a pseudonym that, quote, life is repetition. If it's possible, he wrote, wondering if we can really ever actually do the same exact thing multiple times in a row. If it's possible, repetition makes a person happy. It gives them, he wrote, the blissful security of the moment. I think about this when practicing archery, too, which I've done for a little while. Shooting arrows is sort of like this here with the ping pong balls, a thing practiced over and over and over again, and not ever the same, really, in each instance. Able to be explored as deeply as a vast subterranean chasm. But when you release an arrow, an instant passes before a result with little perceptible interference from the outside world, except for, you know, wind and gravity. Letting go of the ping pong ball, I trace it consciously, almost in slow motion from one obstacle to the next. And I see with very clear sight where it goes wrong, where it goes right. And I wonder in each case, can I control for that? Is there some minuscule change I can make so that doesn't happen or does and get me that much closer to a sure goal? What if I throw with my thumb and forefinger instead of all fingers in a line opposite my thumb? Is there a spin that I can impart when I throw that will have an impact? What if I tilt this pan ever so slightly? Maybe I should tape up my HVAC vent. I hear Hans and Molly at a great distance. Please be careful as the darkness of the chasm envelops me. Philosopher Antonia Pont writes of practicing, with an S, if it matters, as something which constitutes neither virtuosity nor suffering. Practicing is neither perfect nor punishment. It is, she says, sustainable and pleasant. The activity being practiced, the practice, must be benign. It must not wear us down, or else it becomes something else. To practice, she explains, is to accept and even search for the interweaving of differences among intentional repetition. Throwing these ping pong balls, I wonder, am I practicing? Is this a practice? There are certainly elements of it that I am practicing in the conversational sense, if not the philosophical one. I am interweaving differences, I think. I am engaging in intentional repetition, that's for sure. I walk further into the chasm, wondering about wondering about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and why, trying to perceive the difference between each shot as the daylight shrinks and dims behind me when it happens. Okay, so 
feels like. It took just over 46 minutes, but I got it. Finally, a success. Four pan bounces and the ball is in the cup. So simple. So monumentous. I want to celebrate, and I do, but what am I celebrating? I wonder to myself. I've done the same thing over and over and over again and been successful once. Can I celebrate my skill? I don't think my skill has had much bearing on the outcome. Am I celebrating this ping pong ball on its successful journey? I'm reminded that Sam Trickshot Carlson marks and tracks successful balls, presenting them as relics on his website as though they're imbued with some power, having reached their solo cup destination. Am I celebrating it? The circumstances, the moment, the whole system of household objects and time which has been invested, which has passed, the effort expended to get to this instant, which dissipates as quickly as it formed. In Trickshot live streams, which I've watched uh, a bunch of hours of, there's often a collective jubilation at successful shots. Especially, of course, if it's been a while since the last one, and or the shot is particularly challenging. The emoji fly, the LFGs overrun the chat, the audience really shares in the success. It's as if the trick shotter is a team that they root for, a team competing against, well, I'm not sure, actually. The pots and pans and clothespins? The ping pong balls? Themselves? Time? Practitioners, Antonia Pont writes, meaning those who practice, might playfully be seen as time workers. A practitioner makes time for their practice, which is, quote, objectively fun, nice, simple, pleasurable, and with some intricacies that might invite a little effort, and which one unfathomably often doesn't quite want to do, or which one resists doing with startling tenacity. I think of Trickshotter's live streaming, which is tough to think of outside of the logics of fame and capital and platforms and algorithms and labor, work, not time work, but work work, which isn't generally fun, nice, simple, pleasurable. Live streaming in particular is the most complicated thing otherwise normal people do, and it's shocking to me how many people do it. There's definitely an inertia that I feel in adhering to my own self-imposed live streaming schedule, which I certainly resist with a startling tenacity. But there is then also always the simple pleasure of having done it. I recognize that. I feel it. But I don't have to stream. It's not my job. I don't have to throw the ping pong balls. It's not my job. Well, not usually. It is right now, sort of, but Hans, Molly, I want to assure you, I do not feel myself getting sucked in. But anyway, I don't know for how many trick shotters this is work, a job. I suspect the answer is some. I wonder, does this practice of trick shots specifically, change? Does it become something different, more, less, worse, better, when repeated over and over again? A repeating repetition in public, framed by all of the things brought by social media, the numbers, the buttons, the audience, there themselves 
perhaps again and again and again. There's a several times nested repetition here that I'm fascinated by, but which is ultimately out of my reach unless this does become my midlife crisis. And I feel distantly like there's something courageous about the multi-hour dedication to some seemingly impossible and ultimately useless success. Useless in the way all art is fundamentally useless. Its lack of use being the point, really, and the source of any power that it has. And also the source of a well-known anxiety in the people who have tasked themselves with making it. Which is funny. We say when we sink a shot that we've made it. We celebrate maybe then an act of creation, one in uniquely challenging circumstances. A question, or a thought, I guess, for the trick shotters I couldn't snag. I go and get the successful ball from the cup, my relic, and I stand back in front of the starter skillet. I toss it again, and I wonder, how do I know when to stop? And also, am I still having fun? He who chooses repetition, Kierkegaard wrote, he lives. Or as another writer on the absurd may have put it, one must imagine Sisyphus and the trick shotter happy. You can find sources for this segment in the show notes, including links to a bunch of trick shotters if you want to watch them. For an earlier version of this segment, our senior producer Hans spoke with artist Tara Osgar about her durational performance work and to get her take on trick shot live streams. A sincere thanks to Tara for her time. and We'll put links to her work in the show notes as well. And an edit of her thoughts will be up for members next week. Highly, highly recommend checking out her work. It's great. If you do trick shots, I would love to hear any thoughts you want to share about your work. How does it feel making a shot after 7, 10, 14 hours? And if you do trick shots live, how does your audience react in those moments? I would love to know what this work means to you and how you've arrived at the decision to do it. And if you're not a trick shotter, tell me about your practices. What are the things that you do that are objectively fun? nice, simple, pleasurable, and with some intricacies that might invite a little effort, but which you unfathomably also don't quite want to do, or which you resist doing with a startling tenacity. And tell me why. Why such tenacity? Send us an email, a voice memo, leave us a voicemail, and we may respond in a future episode of Never Post. Instructions on how to get a hold of us are in the show notes. Hans Buto, senior producer, never post.
The beats that you have been hearing throughout this episode are government funded. That's right. Tax dollars at work. The project that these come from is called Citizen DJ, and it is incredible. Citizen DJ was created in 2020 by a man named Brian Fu. Really smart, really cool. Brian was a part of the Innovator in Residence program at the Library of Congress. Brian chose to create a public portal that allows anyone to make music using free-to-use samples from the library. You go in, you get to choose from hundreds of recordings. There's opera, folk music samples, but there's also like World War II training films, dialect interviews, conversations with celebrities, a ton of stuff. And you pick your beats, you grab a sample, and then you can live mix your own songs. You can even record it right there in the portal. We have all of us been playing with this on the team, and you should too. In the show notes, you'll find links to Citizen DJ and instructions on how to contact us to share what you do with it. Send us what you make, and we might just use it in an upcoming episode. That is the show we have for you this week. We're going to be back next week with our first mailbag episode. That's very exciting. Please get your comments in by next Monday if you want us to respond to them in that mailbag episode. Uh, And then we're going to be here the week following on March 13th with a normal episode, two segments, as you know it, as you love it. We've also got a few surprises in the works for the member-only programming feed, so keep your eyes upon for those sweet, sweet drops. Okay, love ya. Never Post producers are Audrey Evans, Georgia Hampton, and the mysterious Dr. First Name Last Name. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Our executive producer is Jason Oberholzer. And I'm your host, Mike Rigano. We have undertaken something, the consequences of which we know not. We imagine we will be forced to choose. Something in us dramatizes the choice. We have created a universe of opposites which cannot be reconciled. We have created a dichotomy, the parts of which we cannot interpret. Excerpt of Headlines from Atalanta, Acts of God by Robert Ashley. Never Post is a production of Charts and Leisure. <laughs>